0: We're going, going in a, into a passage that really touches on what the purpose of the church is. What is the nature and purpose of the church? Why, why are we here? What do we do? Why did God, in his wisdom, decide it would be good for like-minded Christians to gather together and create communities? What is the, what's the point of such a thing? And there's been modern views of the church well it's a hospital for the sick and it certainly is for the sick so that they can come be healed be strengthened and become strong worshipping Christians but it's not just a hospital for the sick it's not just a reactive institution And it's not just a community of like-minded believers, but it's a base of operations for the gospel. Go and The Great Commission is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Where else would that be done except for the local church? Where else would that be done? Discipleship takes place in a local church and among a local congregation. So... The church, brothers and sisters, is where the gospel is believed, where doctrine is preserved, where the gospel is displayed, and where people are brought in and they fall on their faces, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and they say God is really among you. So, what the church is is a holy witness to reality, not just a hospital a hospital for the sick, but a witness to reality. Read with me 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 through 16. The apostle Paul writes to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Now in this passage, Paul explains why he's writing 1 Timothy. Why he's been writing this letter all along. Number one, it's to clarify... The conduct of life expected of Christians in the church. And number two, it's to encourage Timothy to keep Christ front and center. Because there is a lot of preoccupation with speculations and endless genealogies, Paul talks about. And so what Paul wants to do is say, no, the Christian church is not here to pontificate, it's to preserve sound doctrine. And to display stewardship that God has given you through faith. So I want to say that today, my main point, what I could if I could get something into you today, I would get into you this one thing, that the purpose of the church is to demonstrate and preserve the gospel. The purpose of the church is to demonstrate and preserve the gospel. I'd like to just treat this passage in three movements. Number one, the reason First Timothy was written. Number two, the basis of Paul's moral appeal to the church. And number three, the content of the church's confession. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing. Now, I've, as I was studying this passage this week, that. That jumped out to me. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing. Paul's hope was to go to the church at Ephesus and to help Timothy establish the church there. But he is writing instead. He's writing a letter provisionally because he can't be at the church of Ephesus at this time. He believes the best thing he could do is be there But because of circumstances, he's writing. That's not what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to be in Ephesus with his protege, Timothy. But in God's wisdom, Paul wrote a letter. And it is not the visit that Paul wanted to make that God used to establish the church in Ephesus and other churches throughout the world. But it is the actual provisional writing that God used to establish the church in Ephesus. And now for 2,000 years, the book of 1 Timothy, the letter of 1 Timothy has been read and used to strengthen the churches of God. And meanwhile, this was a provisional letter by Paul. But it was not the visit, it was the letter that God used mightily. I think this is a very this sets forth a very important principle for us in serving the Lord. What we hope to accomplish for the Lord is one thing. You may have great hopes or had great hopes to accomplish great things for the Lord. Maybe you wanted to give something to the Lord, do a great work for the Lord and praise God for that. But that's one thing. But then there is God's ability to use what you do, in fact, give him. What you do, in fact, do for him. And he is able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think. Just like he took 1 Timothy and used it to strengthen his churches for 2,000 years, when Paul's real desire was to go to the church in Ephesus, perhaps he will take something provisional in your life, and not maybe the ultimate thing that you wanted to do, but he can multiply. Multiply what you, in fact, do for him and his glory. So I want to encourage you today not to preoccupy yourself with what you can't do for the Lord right now, or what you haven't done for the Lord. Rather, occupy your mind with what you can do and with what you are doing for the Lord right now, knowing that the Lord can multiply those efforts. Maybe you're like the disciples when they say, Oh, Lord, all I have is a five fish and a few small loaves. The Lord can multiply that. Maybe you're like the woman who said, Lord, I only have one mite to give to you. Maybe that's the greatest sacrifice that you can give. So focus not on what you can't do right now or through circumstances of life what you are not doing right now. Focus on where God has put you and what you can do. Just like the Apostle Paul wrote a provisional letter and God used it for his glory to strengthen his churches when his original intent was to visit Ephesus so he can use your provisional efforts for his glory to strengthen and build his church. Now, the reason Paul is writing First Timothy is so that people would know how to behave in the household of God. I hope to come to you soon, he says, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, one may know how he ought to behave in the household of God. Behave is a funny word because it, 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 to me, it sounds like I'm writing to you so that people know how to act when they're in church. And that's not the idea. It's not, you know, like we want our children to behave when they're in front of people. The word behave is on a strefo, and it means a manner of life. It means the way you live in virtue of being part of God's household. So I, I like other translations that say, I am writing to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. The whole reason for First Timothy is to give instruction about how the community of saints should live together and worship together. When the church is gathered together, what we should be together as a community of saints. So I have three words that kind of describe what Paul has said so far in the letter. So how should we behave? How should we conduct ourselves in the household of God? Love, love. Reverence and holiness are three words that characterize what Paul's been saying so far. First of all, love. In chapter 1, Paul says, Teach men not to devote themselves to different doctrine. This is verse 3 to 5. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the purpose of all of our theology is to aim at love for God and love for the brotherhood. That's the purpose of it all. It's to aim at loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as we study, for example, when we study the... If you've been to Bible study, you know that we do study real, systematic theology. So this is not something we... I'm not just saying, it. it love rather than doctrine. That's certainly not what I'm saying. I am saying that our... Specific and even intense and detailed study of Christian doctrine aims, if done rightly, at an honest and zealous love and understanding of who God is, what He has done, and a love for the brotherhood. So, love. Number two, reverence. When we come together in the church, we come together joyful but reverently. So in, Paul, in verse chapter 2 verse 8 Paul said, "I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling." The point of the assembly is not to come men and argue our point, especially in the assembly. It is not to take pride in our position <clears throat> but to come reverently before the Lord to worship him to take in the word to be a fellowship of saints and again I am not saying that we don't debate we do debate in this church we do discuss things, deep theology but the ultimate thing is to reverently approach the Lord for who he is and what, he, what he's done Likewise the women, he said. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and modesty. So men should not come quarreling, trying to show how intelligent they are. Women should not come immodestly dressed, trying to show how beautiful they are. In the church, we are not pointing to ourselves. We are pointing to, to God in worship of him. So, Reverence. Number three, holiness. The qualifications for elders and deacons, for example, are elders above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, a man who is holy, his life is devoted to the Lord, a godly man. And that's what Paul Required of leadership in the church especially but of all Christians of all Christians so that's why Paul is writing 1st Timothy so the church would focus on love for the saints reverence in the assembly and holiness in the leadership so a church should conduct themselves with love for the brethren reverence and holiness here's the question why? Why should the church conduct themselves in love, reverence, and holiness? If you say we should conduct ourselves with love, the whole world will agree with you. Yes, we should be loving. What the world needs now is love. Why reverence? Because this is the great tradition? Why holiness? Is that just a Christian way of saying, well, we should be good and Moral people, why should we be this way? What is the basis for such an exhortation to tell a whole congregation with some passion that they should be reverent and holy? It's because of what the church is. It's because of what the church is and what the purpose of the church is. Number one, Paul says that the church is the household of God. How one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. We are a people who belong to God's family and therefore are under his authority. And that's the idea of household. When a Christian parent adopts a child, for example, so you have an eight year old child, and the eight year old child at this other home where the parents didn't care for him, let's say, could go to bed whenever he wanted to, could eat whatever he wanted to, could watch whatever he wanted to, could do whatever he wanted to. But when he comes into this Christian parent's household, there's a bedtime. There's family devotions, there's restrictions on television, we go to church on Sunday morning. Why? Because my house, my rules, the father would say. And it would be for that child's good and for his health and his life. My house, my rules. When we come into God's house, God's rules. We're adopted as his children, but now God rules us. No Christian has the right to say things like my body, my choice, or it's my life, my choice. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. It's not your life. It's not your body. So glorify God with your life and your body. So when you were a Christ, when you became a Christian you were adopted into God's household through the Holy Spirit and now it's his rules. Romans 8.15 says For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is your adoption into God's household. And we are God's children now. And the church, as his people, comprise his household. So, the first reason you should conduct yourselves, or we should conduct ourselves in love, reverence, and holiness, is because we're part of God's family. And in his house, we abide by his rules, for his glory and our good. Secondly, a second reason... We should operate in love, reverence, and holiness is because we're an assembly of the living God, Paul says. When we come here, we're not just doing something religious. This is not dead religion. This is not tradition that we're coming here for. This is not a lifeless act When we come to church This is approaching a holy God To worship To be instructed and edified by his word To lock arms with brothers and sisters And to live our life for his glory And as a sacrifice So this is not a matter of lifeless and formal religion This is a matter of approaching a holy God I love Hebrews Twelve twenty eight through twenty nine. The author says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that shall not be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's why we should worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because He is a consuming fire. He is a God of consequence and action and life and even danger. What story do you think is in the author of Hebrews' mind when he says God is a consuming fire and therefore we ought to worship him with reverence and awe? Hmm? Sodom could be You know what hit my mind when I said when... Because this almost sounds like a be very careful kind of passage. Let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. Acceptable worship. With reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. This made me think about Nadab and Abihu... In the Old Testament, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, and wasn't weren't taking God seriously? They were taking their position lightly before the Lord. Thank God, He hasn't smote us down like that when we've approached the Lord unacceptably. But in Nadab, in Abihu's situation. It was different, and this shows the holiness of God on Leviticus 10. It says Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, which is very important. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. If you would be near the Lord, if we would be near the Lord, he must be holy in our midst. We don't approach him presumptuously or as an act of mere formalism we approach him as a holy god of a, a consuming fire this doesn't mean that god is mean but he is dangerous one of my favorite authors is a great you know the best authors to read are good conversation partners people who teach you something but also somebody who makes you think and perhaps you might disagree with but says, but gives a good reason to think this thing. Dallas Willard's one of those people in my life, and he says, "The intelligent person recognizes that his or her will, her, his or her well-being, lies in being in harmony with God and what God is doing in the kingdom." God is not mean, but he is dangerous. It is the same with any other great force he has placed in reality. Electricity and nuclear power, for example, are not mean, but they are dangerous. I think that's a good way to think about it. The Lord is dangerous. He is good. Like C.S. Lewis said, but he is dangerous. Dangerous but good. Like a lion. Aslan is dangerous but good. So, we should live and conduct ourselves in love, reverence, and holiness because we're a part of God's family we belong to his household and because of who God is this is a church and assembly of the living God and there is consequence and there is life and there is action and there is holiness in who he is third we should conduct ourselves in these manners because of what the church is the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth the church exists to uphold the truth. So a pillar, something tall, perhaps, that upholds a structure. A buttress is something that comes and supports a framework. Um, when we bought our first house, our our um, foundation was leaning. It was cracked and it was leaning a little bit, and so... We had to have masons come in and put a, what I think was called a pilaster, pilaster in and and rebar in there to support the foundation, lest it crack further and fall. That's what Paul is saying about what the church is like. It upholds the truth and supports the truth. God is using the church to lift up the truth for the world to see and to support the truth against false teaching, and accusation by preserving the gospel and our lives. So, the church's mission, we have a very high call as the church and the people of God. We uphold the truth and we support the truth. So, those three reasons allow us to know why we should conduct ourselves in love, holiness, and reverence. Because we're the household of God, we're an assembly of the living God, and we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that's the mission of the church. That's who we are, and that's who God has made us to be. So we approach God in a way that represents him, in a way that honors him, and we do so with reverence. Mark Dever, who's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, puts it this way. The whole reason we have a church at all is because God wants a witness to something that will reflect himself. We are all fallen, but now in the local church, he has poured out his own spirit. And together with peace, joy, and love, we are living out with more ethical consistency Not perfection in this life, but with more ethical consistency, we are living the image of God out in us. So the church is a witness to God transforming a people. This is why things like when people say, oh, the church is so messy, and they almost embrace that. I don't like that terminology. I don't want to be a messy, sloppy church. Yes, we have all sinned. And yes, we will all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But we're not called to be a messy church. You know, that's what God has redeemed us from. He's redeemed us from being slovenly. 1 Corinthians 6.11, the Apostle Paul says, In such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So the mission of the church is to show how reeds who were tossed to and fro in the wind are now pillars and buttress of the truth. It's to show how dead branches are now oaks of righteousness through the power of Jesus such were some of you. So please don't get me wrong. Christians will stumble and fall, but they will stumble and fall upwards. Not just backwards. They will stumble and fall upwards. So, I know I've said this many times already in this series, but a colony of heaven on earth, that's the church. It is a people in whom God's rule and reign is lived out and believed on in the world, making a pocket of the kingdom and an outpost for the gospel. So, that's why we should worship God in love, reverence, and holiness because of who he is and what the church has been called to be. Now, with that said, please understand that the church is not just about demonstrating the gospel. It's also about preserving and proclaiming the gospel. It's not just demonstrating the gospel through our lives, but it's preserving the truth of the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And now Paul goes into this doxological hymn. In verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. First, the mystery of godliness. Mystery, mysterion in the Greek means something that was hidden, but now is revealed through Jesus Christ. It was shadowy. But now it's revealed in Jesus Christ. So think about like Daniel 7, which is one of my favorite passages. There is a son of man who approaches the ancient of days and receives a kingdom. That mystery has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says mystery, he doesn't mean you to, to like think about shadowy things that we don't really understand. He means that which is revealed in Jesus Christ. So the mystery... From which godliness springs is this. He was manifested in the flesh, his incarnation. This means that God has taken on flesh. Jesus is not just a good man, but he is the creative speech and person. Second person of the Trinity taken on flesh in this life. So John in his famous passage says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The logos, the mind, the reason of God was God and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. So this hymn is outlining the life of Christ. Vindicated by the Spirit. That means the confirmation of Christ's message through the power of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. In in Romans 1, Paul talks about this vindication by the Spirit. says in verse 4, well, verse 3, let me back up, that the gospel is concerning his son who was descended from David According to the flesh And declared to be the son of God in power According to the spirit of holiness By his resurrection from the dead So it seems that the Holy Spirit Is the agent of God The father Was the power that The father used to raise Christ From the dead So that his resurrection Is a vindication of his message So there could be a good man That's one thing There can be a man that teaches the kingdom of God. There can even be a man who does strange miracles. But then to have that man die and raise from the dead, that's a vindication of his message. And if you you remember our, our sermon series on, what was the name of that series? The Logic of Christianity. The reason we believe Christ. The testimony that we believe is Christ's resurrection from the dead. That's, that's the testimony, the vindication, God's vindication to Christ's testimony and the, his gospel. So he was vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels seems to refer to those post-resurrection appearances of angels in his tomb. And now the last three, refer, the last three stanzas, or, um, lines here refer to the reception of Christ's message. Proclaimed among the nations, that's the preaching of the gospel. So the disciples were told to go. And he was proclaimed among the nations. And the Apostle Paul was establishing churches among the nations. He was believed on in the world. People are now coming to Christ and he was taken up into glory, seems to refer to his ascension. Um, His ascension, briefly, is in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, or not not the Apostle, Luke writes, in verse 6, So when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their their sight. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he has ascended into glory, but he is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. So this is our confession. Our confession is about Christ. Now in Ephesus, the problem was endless speculations and and genealogies and, and... Abstract Theology that had no Bearing on someone's life But that's not what we proclaim And that's not why we gather We gather because of Christ So our church Is intentionally Built around Centered around the gospel Which is the message about God's Saving activity Through Jesus Christ That's what we proclaim That's the center of our message. That's why we're here. There's some confusion about that. And there are different kinds of churches who seem to veer off into strange doctrines. Health and wealth preaching about how I can get what I want from God. It's very... What's the word? It almost reminds me of those ancient pagan religions where if you serve the deity right he makes your crops grow and the rain fall but we worship God because of who he is not just to get something from him other churches seem to be very preoccupied in very detailed theological speculation now I'm into that but it seems to take over the central message which is Christ died, risen again, our King and our Lord, that we're to live for him as a sacrifice and be holy and acceptable before him, preach the gospel, make disciples, that's what's central in our life. So, our confession is Christ. The historical events surrounding him, and they're expressed in this hymn, So, let me just sum this up. What I've been talking about is doctrine and practice. Truth and action. They're both combined in the church. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, our morality comes from our metaphysics. It comes from what is, is what dictates how we are. We're not just nice and kind because it's good to be nice and kind. We are We don't believe in Platonic ideals. We are loving, reverent, and holy because of who we are in Christ and who we're called to be by God the Father and who we're made to be by the Holy Spirit. So basically what I'm saying in this sermon is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount you are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth don't lose your saltiness let Church of the Vine not lose its saltiness may we be men and women who know the truth are intellectually stimulated by the truth study the truth Love the truth. And may we be holy, men and women. May we love the brotherhood. May there be a peculiar spiritual fire and warmth in this congregation. So that when someone comes in our midst, they say, there is something different about these people. This is a strange and peculiar community. They earnestly contend for the faith and they truly live the faith. So basically what I'm saying is we've in Christendom we're we're used to asking how can how does the gospel apply to me? How does the kingdom of God apply to me? That shouldn't be our only question every single Sunday. What should be our main question is how can I apply myself to the kingdom? How can this church apply to the kingdom? That's what we're called to. We're called to worship Him, to glorify Him with our lives, to make disciples, and to be a community that can truly be useful to the Lord. So, how can your life apply to the kingdom of God? We acting corporately through meeting week by week and in midweek service and prayer, expository preaching, fellowship, membership, church discipline. This is the way, these are the means God uses to grow his kingdom. And so we commit ourselves to these things, hoping and praying that we can be useful to his glory. Let's close in a word of prayer.